Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Blanco. Thanks, everyone. Try to tidy up here. Thanks, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but this is my first reading in LA, officially. So, <laughs> so thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. It's wonderful to be welcomed into such a great community. And thanks to Skylight Books, and thanks to Kim Dower, who put it all together, who made it happen. So it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be in such a great, sort of wonderful, intimate space, uh, which, by contrast, I've been doing really crazy, wild reading. So it's just wonderful to come back to this, this to sort of my home, which is this book, you know, these, these independent bookstores. So I thank you again, Skylights, for supporting, for supporting poetry, for supporting writing in this way. Um, what I'd like to give you today is a little bit of an abbreviation of um, what I would normally do in a larger sort of when I had in a larger scope or reading. Try to give you a little bit of a narrative through some of the poems of some of the background of what led up to the inaugural poem and some of what my emotional underpinnings of what that poem meant to me. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin by telling you as the story goes. Um, uh, in my family. It's like Richard that was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States, which means that my mom left seven months pregnant um, to Madrid, uh, where I was born, and then 45 days later after I was born, we, uh, we came to the United States. So my baby, my newborn picture is my green card photo. By the time I was 45 days, I had lived in two world-class cities um, and belonged to three countries, uh, technically, or at least figuratively. So if that wasn't sort of the, a higher power going like, guess what little Ricky's going to be obsessed about when he grows up? This whole idea of where am I from? Where do I belong? What is home? Um, both in the sense of, as, as, as we were saying about the cultural context, but really if you really stop and think about it, they're universal questions, this idea. We all ask ourselves those questions in some context. Um, I've been seeing all the neighborhoods around here and getting the download on, oh, on West Hollywood and Hollywood. And I used to live there, but then I didn't do that. I didn't like that. And I went over here. And we all want to find that place where we belong. And that's ultimately what I think my writing is sort of trying to key into the universal feeling of trying to belong and figuring out what that means. Um, I'm going to begin with a poem that's quite hopefully humorous to you, which you probably wouldn't expect from the inaugural poet. So I hope you, this isn't quite a shock. It's not quite one today. Uh, it's quite another side of my uh, Cuban um, side. And it deals with, with trying to negotiate some of that cultural identity and what is home. And one of the 
most bizarre memories that I have of my childhood was watching the Miss America pageant. Um, it was a really big deal at our house, and you got, you got to remember, I'm in Miami where everybody's Cuban, so America is this fiction somewhere that exists, and Cuba is this other fiction that exists in my parents' memory, so my life was spent sort of trying to negotiate and navigate where do I belong in those worlds. And the Miss America pageant was still, you know, I think I've written so many childhood poems and I think I'm over them, and this is from the third book and it's like still like this Cuban PTSD and they like have these bizarre memories that you just have to get down on paper and this is one of them so this is a little Ricky in his little world um, at the Miss America uh, watching the Miss America pageant with the Blancos <clears throat> betting on America my grandmother was the bookie Yep, set up at the kitchen table that night, her hair in curlers, pencil and pad jotting down two dollar bets, paying five to one on which Miss would take the crown that year. Abuelo put all his money on Miss Wyoming. She's got great teeth, he pronounced, as if complimenting a horse, not her smile filling the camera before she whipped away like a cloud in a creamy chiffon dress. I dug up enough change from the sofa and car seats to bed on Miss Wisconsin, thinking I was as American as she because I was as blonde as she was, and I knew that's where all the cheese came from. <laughs> and that wasn't all. Chocolate was from Miss Pennsylvania. The capital of Miss Montana was Helena. Mount Rushmore was in Miss South Dakota. And I knew how to say Miss Connecticut. <laughs> Unlike my tia Gloria, who just pointed at the TV, esa, esa, that one, claiming she had her same figure before leaving Cuba. It's true, es verdad, I have pictures, she swore, before cramming another bocadito sandwich into her mouth. Papa refused to bet on any of the misses because Americanas all have skinny asses, he complained. There's nothing like a big culo cubano. <laughs> Funny how that doesn't need translation. <laughs> and everyone agreed. Es verdad. Es verdad. Except for me and my little cousin Julito, who apparently was a breast man at age five, <laughs> reaching for Miss Alabama's bosom on the screen, the leggy mulata sacheting in pumps and swimsuit, seducing Tio Pedro into picking her as the shore winner. She's the one. She looks guana, he swore. And she did, but she cost him five bucks. Cojone, he exploded as confetti rained down. Bert Parks leading Miss Ohio, the new Miss America, by the hand to the runway. Gloves up to her elbows, velvet down to her feet, crying diamonds into her bouquet. The queen of our country, of our land of the free, amid the purple mountains of her majesty, floating across the stage and our living room, though no one bet on her. And no one, not even me, could answer Mama when she asked, Chico, donde esta Ohio? <laughs> Thank you.
so on to more serious notes. So there's a lot of, I think for all poets, mostly childhood is this endless wellspring of inspiration and torture and lots of therapy bills. But um, <laughs> in any case, um, those early childhood experiences continue to color my, color my life in many aspects. Again, the search of home. And even when i coming to LA, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I could live here. You know, There's always this constant idea of someday I'll be home, 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 right? Um, and that even creeped up in the, in the inaugural poem, um, specifically in the context with my mother. My mother I had always admired because she left Cuba, um, but she left her entire family, unlike my father. Everyone, and you know, for a Latino family, that means the neighbor, the milkman, the grocer, that's all family. She left everybody she knew behind. And I always admired her courage and her, and her sort of understood her longing and her sorrow that you pick up even in your childhood. But thinking about it for the inaugural poem, I had to write three of them in three weeks, by the way, um, I realized what an incredible story of courage uh, not of courage, of faith that was as well. It was the quintessential American dream story that I hadn't quite connected and made the connection that my mother in some ways was more of a, more of American of an American than I could ever be. Um, the faith that she had to have to take that leap and come to a country that was nothing more than sort of an ideal in some pages of a history book, maybe. And so this became the third of the three poems of the inauguration. It's called Mother Country, which doesn't sound... In, in Spanish, um, Madre Patria is, is more like homeland, but it's sort of a translation that works better, mother country. To love a country as if you've lost one. 1968. My mother leaves Cuba for America, a scene I imagine as a standing in her place. One foot inside a plane destined for a country she knew only as a name, a color on a map, or glossy photos from drugstore magazines. Her other foot anchored to the platform of her patria, her hand clutched around one suitcase, taking only what she needs most, hand-colored photographs of her family, her wedding veil, the doorknob of her house, a jar of dirt from her backyard, goodbye letters she won't open for years, the sorrowful drone of engines, one last deep breath of familiar air she'll take with her, one last glimpse at all she'd ever known. The palm trees wave goodbye as she steps onto the plain, the mountains shrink from her eyes as she lifts off into another country. To love a country as if you've lost one. I hear her once upon a time reading picture books over my shoulder at bedtime, both of us learning English, sounding out words as strange as the talking animals and fair-haired princesses in their pages. I taste her first attempts at macaroni and cheese, but with chorizo and peppers. And her shame over Thanksgiving turkeys, always dry but countered by her perfect pork penil and garlic yuca. I smell, I smell the rain of those mornings huddled as one under one umbrella waiting for the bus to her 10-hour days at the cash register.
And at night, the zzz, zzz of her sewing her own blouses and quinceanera dresses for her grown nieces and still in Cuba guessing at their sizes and the gowns she'd sell to neighbors to save for a rusty white sedan, no hubcaps, no air conditioning, sweating all the way through our first Florida vacation. To love a country as if you've lost one, as if it were you on a plane departing from America forever, clouds closing like curtains on your country, the last scene in which you're a madman scribbling the names of your favorite flowers, trees, and birds you'd never see again. Your address and phone number you'd never use again. The color of your father's eyes and your mother's hair. Terrified you could somehow forget these. To love a country as if I was my mother last spring, hobbling, insisting I help her climb all the way up to the Capitol, as if she were here before you today instead of me, explaining her tears, her cheeks pink as the cherry blossoms, coloring the air that day when she stopped, turned to me and said, you know, mijo, I've been thinking, it isn't where you're born that matters. It's where you choose to die. That's your country. Thank you. As I always say, never give a Cuban a microphone. So someone tell me when we're, I need 10 minutes up, Kim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me give a Cuban a microphone there, Congo. Um, so, anyway, a little bit, change the subject a little bit. My engineering, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, you're an engineer and a poet, and they kind of looked at you like a one-eyed monster. Um, and I understand the difference uh, on, on surface. And so I, this poem sort of was a, it was a, poem, was a poem that kind of was trying to answer that question for myself in a way. Um, but what I want to say is that um, in some ways, these things are all sort of related to my culture too. I mean, I studied engineering because I came and grew up in a working class immigrant family and what was encouraged was the traditional stuff. Also, as you'll meet my grandmother in a poem, next poem, I think, um, my grandmother was a big homophobic, verbally abusive, not your quintessential little abuelita. Um, so if I were to tell her that I wanted to study art or poetry, imagine what would happen in the household and she lived with us. Um, so this is an attempt to sort of discuss that in the context of my relationship with my father. There's, some of you have been here to Miami, but this, there's, a, there's a geometry and a setting for this poem. Um, there's a bridge in Miami as you cross a toll, and on one side we have what we call the Civic Center where all the hospitals are, all big hospital, and then there's this wonderful sort of landscape on the other side of all this, the skyline and all the rest of this beautiful site. And I take this bridge every time we go to work. Um, and I should say one other thing about this poem. I'm also fascinated in, the, in this idea of that everything that we call an emotion or an experience happens in a place, in a three-dimensional setting. And I'm trying to play here with how those elements, those concrete elements of our life are really what we remember and how, where things happen. And it's a little abstract, but the poem is not, I hope. <laughs> it's called Papa's Bridge. 
morning, driving west again, away from the sun, rising in the slit of the rearview mirror. As I climb on slabs of concrete and steel bent into a bridge, arcing with all its parabolic Y-squared splendor, I rise to meet the shimmering faces of buildings above treetops meshed into a calico of greens, forgetting the river below runs, insists on running and scouring the earth, moving it grain by grain. And if only for a few inclined seconds, every morning on my way to work, I am 12 years old again, with my father standing on the 10th floor window of his hospital room, gazing back at the same bridge like a mammoth bone aching with the gravity of its own dense weight. The glass dosed by a tepid, by a tepid light reviving the city as I watched and read his sleeping, wondering if he could even dream in such dreamless white. Was he falling? Was he flying? Was he falling? Was he flying? Who was he? Who was I underneath his eyelids flitting like the birds across rooftops and the early stars wasting away? the rush hour cars pushing through the avenues like the tiny blood cells through his vein. The ivy spiraling down like a string of clear licorice, feeding his forearm bruised pearl and lavender, colors of the morning haze and the pills on his tongue. The stitches healed while the room kept sterile with the usual silence between us. For three days, I served in water or juice in wilting paper cups, flipped through muted soap operas and game shows, filled out the menu cards stamped bland diet. For three nights, I wedged flat, strange pillows around his bed, his body shaped like a fallen S, mortared in place by layers of stiff percale. When he was ordered to walk, I took his hand, together we stepped to the window, and he spoke. Mijo, you'll know how to build bridges like that someday. Today, I cross this city, this bridge again, still spanning the silent distance between us with the memory of a father and son holding hands and secretly in love. Thank you. So here's my grandmother, at the risk of seeing how much weight I've put on since the inauguration, I'm gonna take this off. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things I became interested in this last book is this idea of cult what I call cultural sexuality. So it's certainly not the same thing to grow up a little 
Cuban little fat gay kid behind a bird behind bird bowl in the suburb of Miami than it might be to be an Asian American kid growing up in little Tokyo. I don't <laughs> now that I'm staying there tonight. Um, but the idea that that you can't separate, you can't pull those things apart. They all come together. Your your cultural upbringing, your sexuality, all these things sort of mesh and collide. And the poster child for that was my grandmother, who was as homophobic as she was xenophobic. So anything that was culturally weird to her was also queer, or as we say in Cuban. Um, things like Fruit Loops, gay. Legos, gay. Anything in English, gay. <laughs> so I have very little wiggle room in my life as a queer little kid. So this is kind of a funny sort of poem. And uh, I, I thought it was a scathing poem, but it, it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a humorous poem that caught me by surprise because I thought it was a real angry poem. Um, and um, just made me rethink why the hell I became a poet in the first place, because can't get back at your grandmother, what's the point? But um, <laughs> I end up writing these wonderful, funny poems about her when I really, you know, anyway. I guess the therapist takes care of all that. It's called uh, Queer Theory According to My Grandmother, or My Abuelita. This is in her voice, but so she, she's incriminating herself. Never drink your soda with a straw. Los hombres no use straws. Milkshakes? Maybe. Stop buying your mother's Avon catalog and the men's underwear and those Sears flyers. I've seen you. Stay out of those Tupperware parties and her perfume bottles. Don't let her kiss you. She kisses you much too much. Avoid hugging men. But if you must, pet them real hard on the back, <laughs> even if it's your father. Must you keep that cat? Don't pet him so much. Ay, mijo, why don't you like dogs? Never play house, even if you're the husband. And quit hanging out with that Henry kid. He's too pale. And I don't care what you call him. Those G.I. Joes of his are dolls. Drawn to our rainbows or flowers or sunsets. I've seen you. Don't draw at all. No coloring books either. Put away your crayons, that Play-Doh, those Legos. Where are your Hot Wheels? Your laser gun and handcuffs? The knives I gave you for Christmas. Never fly a kite or roller skate, but light all the firecrackers you want. Kill all the lizards you can. Cut up worms. Feed them to that cat of yours. Don't sit Indian style with your legs crossed. You're no Indio. And stop click-clacking your sandals. You're no Tropicana chorus girl. And for God's sake, never, ever pee sitting down. I've seen you. Never take a bubble bath or wash your hair with shampoo. Shampoo is for women. So is conditioner, so is el mousse. So is hand lotion. Never file your nails or blow dry your hair. Go to the barber shop with your grandfather. You're not unisex, are you? Stay out of the kitchen. Los hombres don't cook, they eat. Come, eat anything you want except deviled eggs, blow pops, croissants, bagels, maybe. Cucumber sandwiches, and esos petite fours. Don't watch Bewitched or I Dream of Genie. Don't stare at the six million dollar man. 
I said that weirdly, didn't I? Because I was thinking about him. <laughs> He's responsible for many are coming out, I think. <laughs> and I, don't stare at the six million dollar man. I've seen you. Never Dance Alone in Your Room, Donna Summer, Barry Manilow, The Captain, Antoniel, Bette Midler, and all musicals, forbidden. Posters of kittens, Star Wars, or the Eiffel Tower, gay, forbidden. Those fancy books on architecture and art, I threw them in the trash. You can't wear cologne or puka shells, and I'd better not catch you in those clogs. If I see you in a ponytail, I'm cutting it off. Not sure what she was going to cut off, but. Okay? <laughs> what? No, you can't pierce your ear, left or right side. I don't care. You will not look like a goddamn queer. I've seen you. Even though you are one. Thank you. Hey, just a. Uh couple more poems and then we'll have some questions. Yes, perhaps, or just chat. Um, so real quick narrative interlude here. Um, finally, little Ricky is like, okay, he wants to, goes to Cuba. Cuba's an amazing experience, but it's like not quite the Cuba of his parents. In some ways it is, in some ways it's not. Not quite home 100%. So he's like, he says, well, I'm referring to myself in third person. I'm writing a memoir right now, but he says, um, Fine, I'll get a job in Connecticut and I'll go sleigh rides in the, in the snow and um, you know, visit Martha Stewart every Tuesday for arts and crafts, still with this romantic Brady Bunch idea of what America was. And that didn't quite work out. So um, finally he became this world traveler because I had the summers off and searching again for home all the time and thinking about where could I live? Maybe Cuban and Venice would make sense. Maybe, maybe not. And then there was also, then after that, I. I said, well, let me go back to Miami, which is the only place that sort of felt that understood this animal, this person living between two worlds. And this is where this poem came from. And it's kind of a quintessential sort of idea, or a good goes back to that adage of, you can't really go back home. Um, and this is, I think, a constant universal thing for all of us. It's, it's, that, it's that poem of that one place in your life that you don't want anybody to mess with. That one place in your history, in your life that you just, it just kills you on something when you go back there, and I did. And this place is called Marco Island. Um, I should say, we, we, uh, this is where we used to go vacation a lot, poor man's vacation in the middle of July, $89 for a week somewhere. And I, I went back and took my partner Mark to Marco Island, thinking nothing had changed because nobody asked my permission, and of course it had. And I went on this sort of horrible rant, and I caught myself, you know those moments when you're like your parents? You're like, this is the way my parents used to talk about Cuba. And suddenly I realized how universal their experience really was, because here I was experiencing nostalgia and loss and the sense of, of, of belonging that has disappeared, yet I wasn't, I wasn't my parents. So anyway, here it is, I'm looking for the Gulf Motel. There should be nothing here I don't remember. The golf motel with mermaid lampposts and ship's wheel in the lobby should still be rising out of the sand like a cake decoration. 
My brother and I should still be pretending we don't know our parents embarrassing us as they roll the luggage cart past the front desks loaded with our scruffy suitcases, two dozen loaves of Cuban bread, brown bags bulging with enough mangoes to last the entire week, our espresso pot, the pressure cooker, and a pork roast reeking garlic through the marble lobby. All because we can't afford to eat out, mijo. Not even on vacation. Only two hours from our home in Miami, but far enough away to be thrilled by the whiter sands on the west coast of Florida, where I should still be, for the first time, watching the sun set instead of rise over the ocean. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My mother should still be in the kitchenette of the Gulf Motel, her daisy sandals from Kmart squeaking across the linoleum, still gorgeous in her teal swimsuit and amber earrings, stirring a pot of arroz con pollo, adding sprinkles of onion powder and dollops of tomato sauce. My father should still be in a terry cloth jacket, smoking, clinking a glass of amber whiskey in the sunset at the Gulf Motel, watching us dive into the pool, two sons he'll never see grow into men who will be proud of him. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My brother and I should still be playing Parcheesi. My father should still be alive, slow dancing with my mother on the sliding glass balcony of the golf motel. No music, only the waves keeping time. A song only their minds hear 10,000 nights back to their life in Cuba. My mother's face should still be resting against his bare chest, like the moon resting on the sea. And the stars, the stars should still be turning around them. There should be nothing here I don't remember. My brother should still be 13, sneaking rum in the bathroom, sculpting naked women from sand, and I should still be eight years old, dazzled by seashells and how many seconds I can hold my breath underwater. But I'm not. I'm 38, driving up Collier Boulevard, looking for the golf motel, for everything that should still be, but isn't. I want to blame the condos, their shadows for ruining the beach and my past. I want to chase the snowbirds away with their tacky McMansions and yachts. I want to turn the golf courses back into mangroves. I want to find the golf motel, exactly as it was, and pretend, pretend for just a moment that nothing I've lost is lost. Thank you. So, um, I just end. Uh, I just end with the inaugural poem and um, a little bit of a preface from this little thing, <laughs> um, it, which was. Uh, Sort of, I had to write it almost to make pretend that, uh, to realize that this had really happened, because it was like, I call it, um, what is it? PIPD, Post Inaugural Poet Disorder. Um, 
because it all happens so quick and it feels like this dream and it's just this amazing thing. So, but one of the most important things that happened, the greatest gift to make it short of the inauguration was that in some ways, long story short, there are many great things that happened, but in some ways I realized I was home. And so in some ways that narrative of finding place, I realized that that's, that's my mother's story sitting right next to me in the, at the platform is America. My story is America. Every single story in here is America. And that that search for home is quintessentially American. The idea of who we are is just an American story and how we're gonna figure all this out. And the great part is we get to write that story. We get to start writing it. We keep on writing it together. And so I was felt at home and this is what this little preface does and I'll read right into the poem. In that moment, I feel America standing as one, putting differences aside and taking a deep collective breath. We pay tribute to something far bigger and more important than any one of us, though I truly feel like one of us, one of we, the people, and the echoes of the president's and others' speeches. I embrace America in a way I never had or thought I could, feeling for the first time that I belong, truly belong, to one country, not an imaginary ideal from TV or a nostalgic island floating in the sea of my parents' memories, but a real, tangible place that is mine, was mine, all along. I turn to my mother and whisper, Mama, I think we're finally Americanos. She gives me a tender look, as if saying, I know, I know. Senator Schumer introduces me and calls me up to the podium. My mother squeezes my shoulder. I stand more confident than I imagined I would or could be, transfixed by the moment that it's no longer about me or my poem or my glory, but about our country. Still, I'm surprised when the president and vice president stand up to greet me and shake my hand on the way to the podium. They both whisper something in my ear that I can't make out but their gracious gestures speak silently, silently to my heart as a saying, Richard, here is your country. This is your story. Here, you are home. I step up to the podium, look out over the crowd, a patchwork quilt of lives, of stories spread across our ground, under our sky, beneath our one sun. I take it all in as I take one deep breath, then another. This is for them. This is for all of us, I think to myself, and begin speaking into our wind. Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, America won today. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes, spreading a simple truth across the Great Plains, then charging over the Rockies. One light waking up rooftops, under each one a story told by our silent gestures moving behind windows. 
my face, your face. Millions of faces in morning's mirrors, each one yawning to life, crescendoing into our day. Pencil yellow school buses, the rhythm of traffic lights, fruit stands, apples, limes, and oranges arrayed like rainbows, begging our praise. Silver trucks, heavy with oil or paper, bricks or milk, teeming over highways alongside us, on our way to clean tables, read ledgers, or save lives, to teach geometry or wing up groceries as my mother did for 20 years so I could write this poem for us today. All of us, as vital as the one light we move through, the same light on blackboards with lessons for the day, equations to solve history to question, or atoms imagined. The I have a dream, we keep dreaming, or the impossible vocabulary of sorrow that won't explain the empty deaths of 20 children marked absent today and forever. Many prayers, but one light Breathing color into stained glass windows, life into the faces of bronze statues, warmth on the, to the steps of our museums and park benches as mothers watch their children slide into the day. One ground, our ground, rooting us to every stalk of corn, every head of wheat sown by sweat and hands, hands gleaning coal or planting windmills in deserts and hilltops that keep us warm, hands digging trenches, hands routing pipes and cables, hands as worn as my father's cutting sugarcane so my brother and I could have books and shoes. The dust of our farms and deserts our cities and plains mingled by one wind, our breath, breathe. Hear it through the day's gorgeous din of honking cabs, buses launching down avenues, the symphony of footsteps, guitars, and screeching subways, the unexpected songbird on your clothesline. Here, squeaky playground swings, trains whistling or whispers across cafe tables. Here, the doors we open for each other all day, saying, hello, shalom, buongiorno, howdy, namaste, or buenos dias in the language my mother taught me, in every language spoken into one wind, carrying our lives without prejudice as these words break from my lips. One sky, since the Appalachians and Sierras claimed their majesty and the Mississippi and Colorado worked their way to the sea, oh, thank the work of our hands, weaving steel into bridges Finishing one more report for the boss on time, stitching another wound or uniform, the first brush stroke on a portrait, or the last floor on the Freedom Tower jutting into a sky that yields to our resilience. One sky, 
toward which we sometimes lift our eyes, tired from work. Some days guessing at the weather of our lives. Some days giving thanks for love that loves you back. Sometimes praising a mother who knew how to give or forgiving a father who couldn't give what you wanted. And so we head home, home, through the gloss of rain or weight of snow or the plum blush of dusk, but always, always home, always under one sky, our sky, and always one moon, like a silent drum tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, all of us facing the stars and hope a new constellation, waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it together. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Gracias. Namaste. <laughs> uh, some questions? Gossip? I'm open to gossip. I'm Cuban. <laughs> yes. Good question. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because are you a writer yourself? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, ordinarily, I'm not. You know, outside of graduate school, I've not been in the habit of sort of sharing every single poem and every single phase. But this was a very special three poems in three weeks. Um, uh, arguably the most. So my critical skills were like went out the window a little bit. So things were like I needed to make decisions and really quickly. So. Um, I relied a lot on an old friend of mine from a graduate school, Nikki Mustaki, who I thank profusely in the book, and we would workshop the poem o over the phone um, till like three in the morning. Um, I just needed that soundboard really and really effectively and quickly. There was no time to like sit on oh, maybe we should break this line over here. I mean, we had to, you know. And, and it speaks to, I think, what all writers in this room and know, and if those of you who are not writers and should know, that nothing happens in a vacuum. And in a way, my relationship with her throughout this whole process bond, bounded us in a way that the poem itself, one today, reflects. The idea that we don't exist in a vacuum, that everything that happens in our day happens because of a million zillion people all stepping up and doing what they do. And so that idea that it all sort of was connected. So it was very, it was, it was, she was a great help. Great help. Good questions? Go ahead. Do you know how you came to the attention of the president? Uh, no, um, um, I, I write a little bit about it in the book of, I prefer my romantic notion of him in the Oval Office, like absorbed in my book and telling he'll call back Putin <laughs> later. Um, or dare I imagine him and the late first lady like snuggled in bed over my poems. Um, I can't help but think though that, and I always say this, that if the president would have been a poet, 
I feel he would have written stuff like this. I mean, his biography is more complicated than mine. This idea of negotiation of a, what's your place in America, your place at the table, this idea of what he's just such an incredible American dream, right? And so that's kind of like where I come from in my family, you know, searching for this dream. Um, I was, I went to the Oval Office in May after the inauguration and um, he kind of looked me in the eye and said, um, I was like, well, you know, he talked a little bit about this and then he was stalling a little bit and he said, well, you know, your work was brought to my attention and he just looked at me in the eye and I was like, and I looked at him in the eye and I think there was an unspoken said like, I'm not going to ask and you're not going to tell me and vice versa. <laughs> like, it's just like, because I think the important thing, I think they too like this idea. It's about the beauty and the mystery of remaining in that sense of, so the, the de details of anything government must have some more mundane, and I think we all, we both wanted to stay away from that. But I can't, I can't, I can't feel that, that he was attracted to the work that was brought to his attention because of the very subject matter, you know. I know that I've been always attracted to his biography outside, beyond his politics, but because he was, I've identified with it. He was me, you know. I was him. Like I was that little kid growing up and trying to negotiate all my place in America and all these different influences and things coming at me. So, right. Richard, um, I'm curious about how you two growing up in the sort of parallel experiences in the Has he ever inspired a poem? Yes, in the third book, he's, he's inspired a poem called. Uh, um, um, to my brother in Mount Barker. He knows how to ski and I don't. Um, surprise, right? The straight one skis. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, my relationship with him has been on and off wonderful and periods of sort of weird silence. Um, but w what's interesting to him is that he's more traumatized about this. In a, in a, he's more scarred in a way. He left when he was six and a half years old. They throw him in some school in Spain and everybody's going <laughs> with the zetas. And he's just like, what the hell is this? Four months later, they throw him in P.S. I don't know what in New York, in Manhattan, with with his name, phone number, and address because he didn't know a word of English. They just put him on the bus. There was no ESL education, so I think he had a reaction to all things Cuban that was a little weird. Like he just didn't really think about it, and he's the one who really should have had more memories. He got divorced after 25 years, and the first thing he did was go to Cuba with me. So it, it's it's really interesting when you come to that question in your life of when you finally ask, what am I really made of? And I think that happened to him la later in life. I think he, he, he had avoided that question for a long time. So, um, so we, you know, he, he doesn't like to dance salsa. This is like, they, we're, we're great brothers. And my grandmother got to him too, but. What was, the, what was the feeling when you got the call that you were going at the inauguration. Sure. Um, when, uh, there were three things that sort of happened in succession, and I, I read a little bit about it in the book, but I'll tell you more that's maybe not in there. Um, one, surprisingly even to me, was this, over, this amazing, overwhelming sense of gratitude. Not for the call, but about my parents and my grandparents, and thinking about all their hard work, all the sacrifices they, they did to give us an education, to guide us and do the best they could. So in some ways, I have this idea that you know we think we think that who we are as adults are by our choices, but we don't realize that when we're born, we're we're born in the middle of Act Five. You know, like <laughs> there's so many decisions that have been made that affect who you are, and so you're a continuation of a story that's also just begun. And at that moment, I felt like 
this is the product of their story. This is where mine actually really begins, and they got me up to here. So that was one phase. The other one was, as you saw, I write all about America, and I've been questioning what America is. So for about three seconds, I was like, oh, I got this. Don't worry. Don't worry, Obama. We got it. <laughs> I got it covered. There's a little bit of a cocky moment there for about, seriously, like for five seconds. I'll, I'll write the, I'll give him the Miss America poem or something. <laughs> I've been writing about America until then. After I realized, okay, no, we can't do that. <laughs> so then I was really excited, nervous as hell, but really excited because in a way, in a way it made sense for me to have this assignment and it completed me and leaped me forward into new creative territory and new questions about America that an involvement of those questions. Now I'm curious to see what others' experiences are. I'm curious to explore America per se outside of more a, a little more outside of the autobiographical not that I won't s still write very autobiographical poems but that it gave me permission to do something else so, and that was the third sort of phase was um, just coming to the assignment and and being excited about it and then the fifth seventh and eighth and were terror panic um, and all the rest <laughs> it's a really good blend between your personal story and the country as a whole. And right. Unity. But you can see the third poem, what happened, the third poem, the Mother Country poem, was a very poem that I was very comfortable with, and that was the third poem I wrote. So I, the first two I submitted, they obviously picked one today, they loved one today, um, versus the first poem. And then I wrote the third poem, and I was like, I fell in love with the third poem, because it was, oh, I was comfortable, and the third poem was like, I want to read that poem. And, and I was like, what bargaining power do I have? What can I tell them I'm not going to read? Find somebody else. <laughs> yeah, it was too late for them to find another poet. I was like, just sort of negotiating in my head. Um, but it was actually thanks to author Julia Alvarez, um, who put, talked a lot of sense into me, and realized that basically why I was scared is because it was a new poem. I, I was breaking new creative territory, and that's always scary. And, um, but what I've realized after this year and a half of reading this poem, so it's one of the most personal poems I've ever written. I just stayed away from the eye. But everything there, and that's why I tried to give you the back, right, the background of that search for home, the spirit, the sentiment, the sentiment in the poem is for all of us to sort of realize we're all home, that we're, we're all one nation village, we're all a tight community. And if you think about it, that's who we are. We're, we're all these millions of communities that just make up what the human experience is and where we find the most solace and the most belonging. And, and I think it, it was my wish for everyone was, the, was, was what I was after as well, so. A shared dream. I see, yeah, yeah, and and it, and it was a great exercise because it taught me. Until that moment, even with three books and numerous sort of honors, um, I still thought that why my work was well received in the back of my head was well because you have an interesting story because of your subject matter because you're a little Cuban kid and yeah everybody loves Cuban stuff you know <laughs> you know self defeating thoughts right. And um, what that poem taught me was that uh, what makes a Richard Blanco poem is not the subject matter per se, but it's how I write about the subject matter. And there was a rough draft of one today that wasn't as, as it wasn't, didn't have me in there. And then by me, I mean it didn't have that, that passion for language, that passion for the image, that, 
that love that I try to bring into a poem, that connection that I want with the poem. And I realized I could do that without having to write about Cuba necessarily or growing up or Miss America or any of the other poems. Not that those aren't valid poems for me too, but it was a great creative lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all in there uh, in between the lines. Questions? Or that? Yeah, go ahead. Or oh, one more here and then, yeah. I was curious if you feel that you're writing a poem that the subject comes to you, or do you go to the subject? Um, I think both. I think what, what I, it sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think you, you create an aura around you where you attract your obsession, right? So my obsession is comes from this idea of home. So I'm always constantly looking for what that means um, and places and things to write about. Give you an example. I wrote a poem about Malta because we um, were going to Malta on a cruise ship and then we couldn't go to Malta and, and, it, and it just, I'm always in that sphere of, well, but I really wanted to go to Malta because I, I was convinced Malta might be the place for me. <laughs> so I think you, you open up that door and you sort of lay the sort of, I don't know, the picnic, the picnic tablecloth out and you invite things in. And then, um, and then you zero in on things and then, then you come into something. So you, I, I think that's the way I work. Um, I don't necessarily, you know, aggressively say, oh, this is interesting, I want to write about it. I just, I, I know when it's in the realm of something that obsesses me and I try to keep that energy around me. Uh, one more question. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to hear, do you have a poem that you always have to go back to and sort of yourself sort of Of my own? Yeah. Um, for me right now, the Gulf Motel poem is something that I, is still lives in me um, in ways that I can't explain. Um, I, I think it's, it's captured so much of what I feel and think and, and, and have been through. Um, I don't necessarily, I go back to a lot of other people's poems. Um, and this is when I say I have favorite poems, not necessarily favorite poets. So um, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, uh, one art by Elizabeth Bishop, um, the red wheelbarrow. I mean, there's a series of oh, usually grad school favorites too that I always go back to that always teach me something new and inspire me. and. Um, take me someplace else every time I read them. I'm like, why did I never think of, feel that before, really? So I do that. Um, as far as my own individual poems, yeah, you know, I do, having a relationship with your old work is kind of a weird thing. It's kind of like, you like them, but they're like, they were true at the time, but you've obviously, if you're doing, if you're doing the right work, you obviously realize that that question has moved on to another in, added more dimensions, or you now have all this other experience that you're bringing to the poem. So, but in one sense, I forgot there was one poet. I think he was a Spanish poet or Latin American poet that said, "You're basically writing one poem your whole life, you know, and you can call it whatever you want, but it's that one central obsession that that is the poem you always come back to in a way. <laughs> it's by default, even the inaugural poem, right? I didn't mean, I didn't set out." All, a lot of this, what I'm telling you, is hindsight. I mean, it's 2020. It's like, it's after the fact. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the creative process that just happens unconsciously. But even there, I'm going back to that same poem, you know. I hate that, but everybody does it. Okay, <laughs> one more question. Well, uh, I wondered whether uh, grad school for you was uh, more literature as opposed to engineering. 
No, I went to, got a master's in creative writing, and we luckily did have a lot of literature. Liter straight up graduate course, lit graduate courses in literature analysis, because I was an engineer and art. Yeah, that's my undergraduate degree. Our educational system in America is a little weird at times. Either like, so I get, I basically got accepted to a writing program, <laughs> which I understand is a creative program, but I didn't know my Whitman from. Well, any number of body parts. Um, <laughs> so I just was writing this stuff, right? Like, and so luckily that program was very literature intensive, so I got caught up. Uh, why do you ask? Uh, huh? Was that in New York? No, in Miami. Why do you ask? I'm curious. I'm, I'm like. I'm well, I'm a, I'm a poet and a playwright. Oh, okay. And uh, so I have an undergraduate degree in literature expansion. And uh, I, I was just wondering uh, if you had. Oh no, I'm a, I'm still a, I've been a practicing I'm a professional practicing engineer to this day. I'm licensed for five three one three five. Um, not since the inauguration. Um, I mean, I've, I set myself, I slowly set my life up. I got cut a deal with employers. I want to work thirty hours. I set myself up to make choices that helped my writing. Um, but with poetry, we often don't have choices to make a living at, so it's not really a compromise. It's just like, it's just reality. I mean, our playwriting, our opera singer, I think, are pretty much we're all there on that. Um, but what happened um, since the inauguration, um, I loved both, and I've always had both uh, in my life since I was a young adult. What happened after the inauguration? Now, now, I, now I have. I'm living the dream, right? Like I'm, I can earn a living as a poet, as a writer, and that's so new to me. I mean, I don't know what that feels like. So I'm just playing it day, day by day. And I also left brain, right brain person, and that kind of I, I hesitate on that a little bit because I, I need that left brain. So, you know, if, if my left brain is like happy hand, happy uh, busy hands or happy hands, that happens to my left brain. And if not, it starts really it start, wants to make spreadsheets of when to change the cat litter and like, you know. And then it starts taking it out on the poetry. Like it starts approaching the poem too analytically and too, and not letting go and just breathing into it. Your poetry is very all inclusive. Well, thank you, thank you. One question or. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>